Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. When Sharon and I were blessed with our three kids, Betsy, Marie, and Grant, one of my desires was to lead them to Jesus and then encourage their spiritual life in Him through Bible study, prayer, singing, and overall devotion to the Lord. It was one of my most important purposes in life to see my kids come to Christ and then to grow in Christ, one of the most important purposes in my life. But many times, Grant, especially early on in his life, would oppose my purposes and do things to sabotage our family time together. It was frustrating, but I kept trying different approaches and persevered over the years. But just to encourage all of you parents who might be experiencing some of these same problems, let me remind you that God is faithful. That little boy who seemed to take delight in wreaking havoc in the middle of our holy moments is now your pastor and doing his best job to see his four boys come to Jesus and and grow in him. All I can say is, don't give up. Even when you feel like it, don't give up. Even when you don't see any results, (laughs) don't give up. And you know something? God never gives up on his purposes either. And because he's all-powerful, he's able to fulfill every purpose in his heart and his mind. Consider these verses. Job 42, 1 and 2 says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then Daniel 4, we read these verses. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And then from Ephesians 1.11, Lael just read, In him, in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, your purposes be accomplished, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's take a moment and pray right now that God's will will be done in our lives this morning, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that even when the enemy means something for evil, that you turn it, you cause it to work together for good in our life for our good and ultimately for your glory. Father, sometimes our faith is lacking. Sometimes there are areas in our life that are just weak and immature that need to become strong and to grow, to recognize that you are faithful and your word is faithful and it's all-powerful. And Father, we desire and ask 
for your empowerment, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to not only know the will and purposes of God, but to obey them, to trust and obey for there's no other way to truly be happy and joyful, but to trust and obey. Fathers, we look at the nation of Israel this morning as we consider King Nebuchadnezzar, as we look at the times that Moses and Aaron and Miriam and the congregation opposed you and yet your purposes prevailed. May we be inclined to know those purposes, to cooperate with you, to participate in those purposes and to experience the joy the sons and daughters can have as they listen to their Heavenly Father and follow him with a whole heart. Speak to us now, Father, and, and use your word to speak to us, not just today, but Monday and Tuesday and all the way through next week and the following week. Let this be embedded in our heart, Lord, so that it becomes part of who we are. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at the purpose of God for the nation of Israel as he brought them out of slavery in Egypt and led them toward the land that he had promised Abraham. We're also going to look at the opposition to that purpose. So open your Bibles, if you have them, and, and turn to Numbers chapter 10, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book of the Bible. Go to Numbers chapter 10. And while you're getting there, let me remind you of God's purposes for the nation of Israel from the very beginning. So I'm going to go back into Genesis to three different accounts. So we'll be reminded of well, what, what exactly were God's purposes for the nation of Israel. First of all, here in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But in the midst of that blessing, God also said, part of my purpose is to refine you and even strengthen you as a nation. And so he said this in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and, there, there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And then on to Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 to 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you 
throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And as you consider that, remember the words of Job. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So now, let's look at God's purpose being carried out and the opposition that arose as we begin in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. First of all, God's purpose, verse 11. In the second year, in other words, in the second year after the exodus from Egypt, remember it took them about three months to get Mount Sinai, and then they were at Mount Sinai for almost a year where God was giving them the law and his instructions. And so this is that second year then in the second month, they're ready to take off from Sinai. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. All right, jump to verse 14. The standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies, and over their company was Nashon, the son of Amminadab. Interesting that Judah, the tribe of Judah, set out first, and I was just thinking of, you know, uh, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he should set out first, and we follow him. So Judah went out, uh, and then Issachar, and then Zebulun. And verse 17 then says, And when the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who carried the tabernacle, set out. So you have these three tribes that set out first, and then after that comes the two sons of Levi that were appointed to carry the actual temple or the tabernacle itself and so they set out after that and then after that the temple goes out then you have uh, Reuben the tribe of Reuben Simeon and Gad and then in verse 21 it says the Kohathites and that was the third son of Levi Kohath they set out carrying the holy things in other words the tabernacle itself all the curtains and tents and all the poles and things like that they went ahead but the Ark of the, 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 uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant and the incense altar, the table of showbread, the lamp, uh, the bronze altar, all those things were carried by this third son of Levi and, and his family, and they set out. All right, and so then you have Ephraim that goes out, Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh, and then Benjamin, Dan, Asher. Oh, Asher's not in here. Okay, I was looking for Asher. Oh, is Asher back there? He's, okay, all right. Tribe of Asher. And then Naphtali. So 28 says this was the order of the march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. It's interesting. I mean, just taking a look at God's plan, here he begins this nation with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and then Joseph, and then they're spending time in Egypt for 400 years, and they're enslaved. And then Moses is sent, and he brings them out through the Exodus, and that was the first part of the book of Exodus that we looked at, all right? Then they come to Mount Sinai, and they're there for almost a year, and Moses and sometimes Joshua goes up to the mountain, and God speaks and gives them the law. And now they finally set out toward the promised land, 
the promise that we just read about in Genesis 13, 15, and 17. And so they're on their way. And God just keeps telling them, here's my purpose, to call out a people and to give you a land. And then to create a tabernacle with a cloud and a, and a pillar of fire and a, a pillar of cloud so that my presence is right there with you and I'm going to lead you every step of the way. I'm giving you the land. That is God's purpose in a nutshell. Pretty clear, pretty upfront. I'm not only going to give you my presence, but I'm going to give you my word. Everything you need in order to live a life that he called Abraham to, to be blameless before me. I am God Almighty. Does it sound familiar? I mean, God has given us Jesus. Through Christ, through the gospel, our sins have been forgiven. We've been redeemed. We've been set free from the house of slavery. He's given us his presence in the Holy Spirit. And now he's calling us to go out in his name. And so he sends us to this company in this neighborhood and to this country overseas. And he, he sends us out. And he goes with us. He's with us in the fire and the flood. It's exciting. It really is exciting. But guess what? Just like us, Moses, the man of God, he stumbles once in a while, and the people stumble. And his brother Aaron and Miriam, they stumble. There's opposition. God's carrying out this beautiful purpose that he began. You know, his will is for our good and for his glory. And yet, we buck it. We oppose it. So anyway, let's look at this first opposition in Numbers 10, verse 29. It begins with Moses. Chapter 10, verse 29. And Moses said to Hobab, Hobab, Habab, how should we say it? We'll say Hobab, all right? Hobab. Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, who was also Jethro, all right? The Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. So even Moses repeats back God's promise. I will give it to you. And he says to Hobab, come with us and we will do good to you for the Lord has promised good to Israel. Moses has it in his mind. God's going to give us the land, and he's going to do good to us. He's a salesman at this point. He's trying to get Hobab to go with him. It's going to be great. We'll have a wonderful time. God will bless us, and we'll bless you. You know, put your lot in with us. But listen to these next few words here. But Hobab said to him, I will not go. I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. Now, a good salesman does not give up quickly. Right? I mean, you know, just because you get one rejection, it doesn't mean you say, well, okay, see ya. Nope, he comes back in verse 31. He says, please, please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. Kind of keeps repeating that promise of good. But do you see who he's putting his faith in? 
He's putting his faith at Hobab. You know where we should camp. And you're familiar, so your eyes can see things. He's trusting Hobab to get him to this next place. Opposition. But what has God already promised to do? He's promised the cloud and the fire to lead them. All right, look at verse 33. So they set out from the mount of the Lord. And what is the mount of the Lord? Sinai. All right. They set out from the mount of the Lord, Mount Sinai, three days' journey. They're moving northward. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them. In other words, God's presence was there. And it was seeking out a resting place for them. Kind of like being on a trip and looking for a hotel to stop at at some point. All right. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. God has already given them eyes. God has already given them his presence. He has said, I will lead you. Don't you think I see things a little bit better than Hobab? Yeah. But here's Moses opposing that and, and trying to make himself feel more secure by asking his brother-in-law, who knows the land a little bit better, to travel with them. It may seem like a small thing, but really it's, it's opposition to what God has already said he's going to do. I'm going to lead you. Trust me. Moses said he's going to give us the land. He's going to do good to us. It appears as though Moses is trusting the Lord. Sometimes we say things that convince others or even trying to convince ourselves that we're trusting the Lord. But our actions sometimes reveal just the opposite. We're really not all in. I trust you, Lord, but just in case you don't come through, I'm going to do this. We're all like that. And then we see some more opposition here in Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Now the people join in, the opposition group. Verse 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. What misfortunes? God, I mean, you know, God uses Moses to take them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He parts the Red Sea and has them walk through on dry ground and destroys the, the army of Pharaoh. He provides manna for them in the wilderness to eat. He gives them water out of a rock. He's taking them to a promised land that's a land of, of milk and honey. What misfortunes are we talking about here? The only misfortunes is when they disobey and they don't do God's will and God has to correct them or send some discipline. That's the only misfortunes I can think of. But they're complaining in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Now, I know nobody in here complains or grumbles, so I'm, I'm speaking about those folks that didn't come today. So you can just kind of think of people that are normally here, well, like my son and his family. I mean, the, they're probably the, the motors and the complainers. You're here. You're the choir. So I'm not preaching to you, or maybe I'm just preaching to myself. I'm not sure. I'm preaching to somebody. But anyway, about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. Frank, you never want to kindle the anger of the Lord. That's just a quick word of encouragement to you, all right? Do not kindle the anger of the Lord. And it says, the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Now, I don't know if that just means consume some tents, some goats, some sheep, or if that means people. I'm not quite sure here, but, you know, fire came and something was consumed. God was upset. And so the people cried out to Moses. You'll find as you read through these wanderings, 
when Moses, the people cry out to Moses quite a bit. <laughs> it, just, it just goes on and on and on. And so Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Verse 4, now the rabble, yes, that's the word, rabble. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again. They're always, they're always complaining, they're always grumbling, they're always weeping, and they said, oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Oh, the fish cost nothing, but their total enslavement, that was the only cost it cost them. They were slaves, but the fish was free. <laughs> it had probably all been partially eaten anyway. But anyway, okay. So the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Is it about lunchtime? I'm starting to get hungry. You guys starting to get hungry? Okay, good. Thank you for a true witness back there. I appreciate that. About time somebody started talking back to me. But now our strength is dried up, and, there's nothing but, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. All we have is manna. Like me growing up, I say to my mom, bologna again? To this day, I will not eat bologna. <laughs> there's just certain things that you have a limit in terms of your lifetime. What, how many, you know, I, I, I've fulfilled my limit and more on bologna. I mean, Mom had creative ways to fix baloney, I'm telling you. I've been, called, I've been said worse stuff, so thank you for that, brother. Yes, I am full of baloney, yeah. So then if you go down to verse 10 to 15, Moses begins to feel sorry for himself. But this is more opposition when you think about it. Look at verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans. By the way, let me just say this to those of you who are parents or grandparents or going to be parents or grandparents. Once you hear crying for a while, whether it's your kids or your grandkids, you, you hear it enough. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to bother you quite as much as, as it did at first. I remember when my first grandchild was born, you know, if anything was wrong, he was crying and happy, even looked bad, you know. Hey, we've got to do something here, something, you know. But now, after seven, it's kind of like, well, there's a couple of them crying. Well, they'll, they'll get over it. Don't worry about it. Let's eat. Let's eat. You know, you begin to just, so I don't know what's up with Moses here. He hasn't learned to put it aside, but he heard the people weeping, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. Ooh, it's going to be like today and tomorrow. It's going to be hot here. The anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, now here's when he starts feeling sorry for himself. And again, I know I'm not speaking to any of you, but so Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. The burden is so heavy, Lord, just take my life. 
I'm ready to go. Now, sometimes we have those kind of burdens. I mean, sometimes the Lord puts us in situations where the, the weight can be oppressive. And uh, we do begin to, our faith lags a little bit. It diminishes. And we do begin to feel somewhat sorry for ourselves. And uh, the best thing to do at that point is to cry out. And that's what Moses did. I mean, he, he was a little bit of a drama queen in the whole thing. You know, Lord, if this can't be solved, just take my life. I'm ready. I'm yours. But it is, it is good to cry out to the Lord when you feel as though you've kind of come to the end of yourself. And don't you think God wants us to get to that point sometimes where we have to cry out to him and say, Lord, I can't, I can't do it without you. I mean, we should know that anyway, and we should sort of be in that position every day we wake up and say, Lord, I know whatever you had planned for me, I can't do it in my strength, in my wisdom, in my power. I'm going to need you today. The burden's going to be too heavy. But God always sends the resources, the manpower, the wisdom, the strength, the perseverance. Whatever it is he's got planned for us that day, he's doing everything for our good and his glory. And that's what you have to believe. You have to have that as a mindset. If not, renew your mind in that truth every day. So then we see, uh, we see God's purpose here in verse 16 and 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. I'll give you some brothers to help carry the load. And that's what we do for one another. That's what churches do for one another. We help each other carry the load when we need to do that. I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and I'm going to put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself. It's okay to admit that you can't handle all of God's purposes in your life. It's all right. Because if we think we can handle it, then probably, and, and God allows us to be successful time after time after time, success, what we consider success, can be a dangerous thing, very dangerous thing. If you find yourself being too successful, you need to get help. I'm not joking. If you find that your life is a little too easy or God tends to turn everything you touch or think about or do into gold, the enemy is just planning to set you up for a big-time fall. So really, it, we ought to be on our face and on our knees <laughs> whether yesterday was a lousy day or a good day, whether we see God working in us or not working in us. It's good to cry out. Just don't have to do it in such a dramatic way that it's all about you. Make it about God's purpose, His will, His glory in your life. You're in His image and you represent Him, but He's the one who works in you and through you. 
I mean, I always tend to pray that. God, do a mighty work in me and through me. Because I know if it doesn't start with him, and if, I don't, if I'm not a, an open vessel, a conduit for his purposes and his glory, and if, I, if I'm not in the spirit, then it, it's kind of like I've, I've, turned, I've, I've, I've blocked the flow of God's spirit through my life. But God doesn't want that. His plan is to move in you and through you powerfully. God wants people to give him glory that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven, says in Matthew 5. But look at Moses. Even after God gives him some help, he goes right back to his old ways. Go down to verse 22. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them? He's thinking about the meat. They're craving this meat. Shall we go out and kill all of our flocks and our herds? And would that be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Moses questions the Lord's power. And now we're going to see God's purpose fulfilled. Go to verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea. And it let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. Now, a cubit is 18 inches. So two cubits would be 36 inches or three feet. God blows a wind to get these quail off course from their regular migration, and he brings them to the camp, and they're a mile that way, and a mile that way. In other words, they're all around the camp. They've got the camp surrounded by whatever number of miles it would take for these, and the quail are flying at three feet high. Everybody in Israel is playing baseball at that point, and they're all playing the catcher position because they're catching quail, left and right, right and left. I mean, the quail are there, boom, got one! Boom, got one! And they're just gathering these quail up. It's, it's a miracle. It's a miraculous thing that God is doing. He's showing his power like he told Moses, now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And so all these quail come in. Verse 32. And the people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Man, have you ever been in a fishing hole where the fish were biting and you just kept throwing them in? Matt, you ever have been in that situation and just kept pulling them out? Yeah, a couple times I was doing that. I was fishing in a spot I wasn't really supposed to be. So uh, anyway, I'll tell you about that later. But anyway, they're just, they're just pulling in quail all over the place. And look at what it says. Those who gathered least, in other words, the least of the catchers, they gathered 10 homers. You know how many bushel that is? That's 60 bushels. You know what a bushel basket looks like? The least number of families had 60 bushels of quail. When you ask God for meat, he'll send meat. But if, if it's an ungodly craving and not God's will for you to have that quail, it's no good how, no matter how much quail you have, no matter how much meat you have. Because look what happens in verse 33. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was even consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague, especially those who had that craving and who were pushing Moses to provide meat. 
So God does provide a miraculous amount of quail, but he also disciplines the people for their selfish desires and their lack of faith and their lack of contentment in the manna. God had provided manna. When God thought it was time for them to eat meat, he would provide meat. Remember Jesus in, in the wilderness when Satan was tempting him? He said, well, if you're the son of God, take that stone and, and turn it into bread. Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days. Aren't you hungry? Jesus says, well, you know, he's thinking, my father will provide food when I need it. Man doesn't live on bread alone. He lives on the, on the word of God. But we, when our flesh gets a hankering for something, it's hard to resist. Do we have the Holy Spirit to help us? We sure do. But sometimes we say no to God's Spirit, no to God's power, no to God's Word, no to God's purposes. We want quail. So what is your quail? What is it in your life that you crave, that you just have to have? Because you know, God may answer that prayer and, and give you what you think you want. But just know, it's not going to taste good. Only when we receive from the Lord what he wants us to have, only then can we really be content, filled, satisfied, delighted. All of those things that we want to be only happen according to our Father's plans. And the nation is having to learn that, and it's, it's, they're not learning it quickly. Look at chapter 12. Here's some more opposition. It says, uh, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And I'm not sure if this is talking about Zipporah or a second wife. I'm not real clear on that. I uh, couldn't really find any definitive answer for that. But anyway, he'd taken on a wife that they weren't pleased with. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And it just says, The Lord heard it. Wow. So let's look at the next few verses and we'll see God affirms his call on Moses and disciplines Miriam uh, for this opposition. Let's go to verse 4. By the way, verse 3, where it talks about Moses was very meek, more than all the people of the face of the earth, that probably was inserted, inserted by someone else other than Moses. <laughs> I don't think Moses would have put that in there about himself, but it is an interesting uh, comment, and it is in God's word, so we have to accept it, but uh, it may not have been written by Moses. Verse 4, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. This is sort of like being called to the principal's office. How, how many of you other than myself had a few times that you were asked to go down to the principal's office? Whew. Israel, you don't want to be called to the principal's office. It's not a good thing. Yeah. Okay, keep that in mind, buddy. All right. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. 
With him I speak mouth to mouth, kind of face to face, and I speak clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The Lord was saying, Moses and I are tight. <laughs> Why would you speak against him in my hearing? And once again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed, but not without some discipline. Verse 10, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow, and Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. So Aaron says to Moses, Brother, Moses, heal our sister. Pray for God, the Lord, to heal our sister. And so the Lord does. But he also, because she's leprous, she has to be put outside the community because of the leprosy for seven days. Kessa, you ever been in a timeout for seven days? It's a long time to be in a timeout, seven days. But that's what happened to Miriam. Now we see God's purposes here in chapter 13. Go down to chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. In other words, take a top man from all 12 tribes of the nation of Israel and send them into the, the, the height and the breadth of Canaan and let them spy out the land to come back and, you know, give us this great report of this land that's filled with milk and honey and going to be so great for us to enter. So he sends them out. But unfortunately, opposition arises when the 12 spies come back. Go to verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, which is sort of south of Israel. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. In other words, it's rich in produce. It's a perfect place to go. And this is its fruit. And they even showed some of the fruit that they brought back that had to be carried on a pole. The cluster of grapes was so big, you couldn't just carry it by hand. They had to put it on a pole and carry it back. But then, verse 28, However, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. In other words, giants. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. In other words, in the whole length and breadth of Canaan, there's all of these tribes and people groups that live, and some of them look pretty big and tough. So God didn't send them into a land that had no enemies, no opposition. He didn't send them into a land where they wouldn't have to exercise faith and trust him and conquer. God's sending them into a land where they have to be more than conquerors through him who loves us and strengthens us. You think God's going to send you through life without anything to conquer? Sorry, 
That's what, not, not what God has promised us. One day, you know, that's where you say, okay, Lord, I think I'm ready. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. There are days like that where you've faced too many things and you feel like they're conquering you instead of you conquering them. But he's going to send them into this land where they have to keep trusting him and exercising strength in his name. But then we see Caleb. You know, Caleb and Joshua were the two spies that tried to encourage them. So look at verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Can you imagine the courage it took when you're two out of 12 men and the other men are just, and, you, and you've had these discussions in the 40 days that you've all been together, and you know what they're going to say, and you come back and say, we can do it. God's giving it to us. With his help, we can take this land. Verse 31, then the men, the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that had spy, they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim. Remember mentioned back in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim, giants, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. I can remember playing basketball at a small school, and uh, most of the teams we played were small like us, but every once in a while you'd, you'd play one of the bigger teams around. And so you'd go out and, you know, you'd start doing layups, and, and it, count, hey, Matt, stand up a minute. Matt's about 6'5", so we'd play certain teams where the, the guys on the team might average Matt's height, and there might be a couple of them that are even, even taller. Here we are anywhere between 5'8 and maybe 6'2 at the most, and kind of looking up at the Giants like, I don't think we could beat these guys, you know. Maybe we should just go back in the locker room and, and call it quits. And that's, that's how they're feeling at this point. We're like grasshoppers. They can just crush us. This land devours its inhabitants. So now we're going to sing a song. I, I sang this with a few people before service. They said they'd never heard it. But have you ever heard this? Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. And what do you think they saw in Canaan? Ten were bad and two were good. Some saw giants big and strong. Some saw grapes in clusters long. But some saw God was in it all. Ten were bad and two were good. Stand up. You sh I hope you were paying attention. Kids, you help your parents with this, okay? All right, so watch me now, all right? Here we go. Let's try it. So you represent 12, you got to go 10, and then 2. 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, and 2 were good. And what do you think they saw in Canaan? 10 were bad, and 2 were good. Some saw giants big and strong. Hey, Alfred, you got to flex a little bit. Come on. Well, I know you didn't want to hit somebody, but, I, you know. Some saw grapes in clusters long. But some saw God was in it all. Ten were bad and two were good. Okay, sit down. We're going to have to work on that one. 
So let's go to chapter 14 and, and see more opposition. Are you guys getting tired of the opposition? I'm really getting tired of the opposition. I'm beginning to feel sorry for Moses myself. All right, so the people are going to rebel. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. They got a bunch of criers in this group, I'm telling you. They're complainers, they're grumblers, they're slanderers, they're weepers. Whoa. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword and these big giants? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And look at this. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let us go back to the house of slavery. Wow. Seems foolish, doesn't it? Be careful. <laughs> Sometimes we want to go back to the house of slavery. Sometimes we have those cravings for the leeks and the onions and, and the free fish. But be careful. Is it God's purpose? Is it God's will? Is it God's plan? If not, just say no. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. God loves you, wants the best for you. There's no reason to want to go back to Egypt. There's nothing but slavery and oppression there. So then we see the response here, verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. In other words, they're grieving here, And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. We'll crush them. We'll eat them up. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear. And then it says the congregation said, said to stone, stone them with stones, but then God shows up, and they don't do that. So here you have Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb, standing up to about 600,000 men and about 2 million people. It takes courage to be a leader. It takes courage to follow Christ. It takes courage to live purposely and willfully under the will of God. It takes courage. But then we see in chapter 14, verse 11, we see God's frustration. Now, Robin and I and a couple of others, we've been studying God's attributes. Can God actually be frustrated? I don't know. He sounds frustrated, though. Let's, let's see here, verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? 
I think this is more directed to Moses. I don't think this, this is God, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, what's it called when you have, go up to a buddy and you just kind of let it all vent? I don't think God's venting here. I think he's just trying to see how Moses is going to respond to what he's saying. And then he says to Moses in verse 12, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. It's kind of like in the flood. I'll wipe them all out and start over with Noah and his sons. And God is saying to Moses, let me just wipe them all out and we'll start over. Remember, God can do anything he wants to. His purposes will always be accomplished. But then Moses intercedes. And this is what good leaders do. They intercede for people that are giving them a hard time, for family members, for kids, for others that... They're a leader. They rise above the grumbling, the complaining, choosing another leader, all of that stuff that would hurt them if they wanted to take it personally, would just crush them and say, I'm out of here. This, this, I've had enough of this, people. But see what Moses does? Moses said to the Lord, he reasons with God. It's okay for you to reason with God as long as you're reasoning according to what he has said and what his word says. I'll just say that to you. Don't try to reason by your own thoughts. Reason from the word of God. So Moses says, then the Egyptians will hear of it. In other words, if you kill them all out, the Egyptians will hear. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. In other words, word's going to get out about this. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God, you've made yourself known that you are, you are this nation's God. So what's going to happen if you just wipe out the people? Now, if you kill this people as one man, in other words, just wipe them all out, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. In other words, they'll begin to doubt your power, God, because you said you were going to do this. And if you don't do this, if you wipe them out and it doesn't happen, then people are going to doubt your supreme power, your sovereignty. It is because the Lord was not to bring this people... It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. Verse 17, And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. The, and and as saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. God's anger has been kindled so many times. And yet Moses reminds the Lord, of course he didn't need to remind the Lord, but he's reminding himself that God, even though he's displeased, even though God will discipline us for our good and his glory, it says he's also a God who's slow to anger. He's patient with us, long-suffering. He's abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But, Moses also says, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love 
just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. God, you've kept forgiving them. You brought them from slavery, and they're ready to go into the promised land. Don't destroy them now. Continue what you've started. And, of course, God has planned to all along. But Moses is working through all these truths. But he also mentions that God disciplines people. I mean, that's part of God's purpose. When you're dealing with a sinful group of people and you're trying to make corrections, there has to be discipline. So look here at, at verse 20. God promises some discipline. Then the Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory, listen, and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land... So none of them shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. In other words, all those people who were adults as, they, as these, the ten plagues happened in Egypt and as they came out of Egypt and passed through the Red Sea and God provided manna and water and is leading them into a land flowing with milk and honey, all the people that were adults and saw that and have rebelled all these many times, they're not going to see the land. But the kids that you thought would be prey for the enemy, they're going to go into the land. And if you read verses uh, 26 through 38, you'll see more details along that line. So what can we learn from these passages? I'll give you three things, three takeaways, all right, from these passages. First takeaway, God's purposes, as stated in Holy Scripture, will be fulfilled in His perfect time. God's purposes, as stated in Scripture, will be fulfilled in His perfect time. Here's an example in Galatians 4, 4, and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God promised the Savior in, the perf in God's perfect time. He delivered. That was God's plan. That was God's purpose. That was God's will. If it's stated in Scripture, it will be fulfilled in God's perfect time. And since that's true, then we should study Scripture to see what those purposes and plans are and bring God glory through our participation in those purposes. Second takeaway is this. The flesh, the world, and the devil will always oppose the plans and purposes of God. Let me give you three texts. First of all, while we're in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, and you will not grant the desires or you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. In other words, the Spirit of God within you will want to do God's will. But if you don't allow that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to control you and to beat down the flesh, 
then you'll begin to do things that your spirit really doesn't want to do. And then the second passage is in Ephesians. So just go right a little bit to chapter 6, taking in the devil and uh, his uh, army. Verse 10, Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So it's not just flesh we have to overcome, but it's against the rulers, evil rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil or wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, it's not only flesh you have to overcome, but it's evil spiritual forces that we have to overcome as well. And then lastly, we have to overcome the world because the world is opposed to God's plans and purposes. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God, in other words, whoever lives according to the purposes of God, will abide forever. So since this is true, we should learn to walk in the Spirit instead of the flesh and know how to put on the full armor of God and do battle with the enemy of our souls. We need to be in Scripture, and we need to put on armor because it's a battle every day to live the word of God out in your life. And the third thing you should remember is that God will discipline us in order to bring about his plans and purposes for us and for his church. All right? Let me read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. If you've never been disciplined by the Lord, then you need to be concerned about whether you're a son or not, a daughter. Because he disciplines those he loves and, and, and he chastises every one of us that he receives. And then why does he do that? Verse 10 explains it. Hebrews 12, 10. For they, referring to our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness and his glory. That's why God disciplines us. He loves us. So we should receive God's discipline as an act of love from our heavenly Father and rejoice that he wants to share his holiness and his glory with us. Now, let me conclude by taking you to the book of Daniel. Please go to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Daniel is uh, sort of the last of the major, or the major prophets before we get into the minor prophets. So if you'll go to uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and keep going to the right, all right, before you get to Hosea, you'll run into the book of Daniel, all right, Old Testament, right after the book of Ezekiel. So I, I read a portion of Scripture to you at the very beginning about Nebuchadnezzar, 
And let me just set the scene up for you a little bit here. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, it's a great kingdom. Uh, God's given that kingdom and that king a lot of glory. So when they, when they captured Jerusalem, and it began in, in the 600s and then, con, uh, I think, concluded in like 586 B.C., they took back people from the nation of Israel to Babylon. And Daniel was one of those younger youth-age men that they took, as well as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is it's their Babylonian names. Took them all back. Well... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you remember the story of the fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar had made this 90-foot golden statue that when certain music was played, everybody was supposed to bow down and, and worship before the golden statue. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego well, said, no, we worship the true and living God. We're not going to fall down before this statue. Well, some people reported it to Nebuchadnezzar, and he was angry. And he ordered they be thrown into the fire and that the fire be heated up seven times hotter than it normally was. The fire was so hot that the men who bound them and threw them into the fire died from the fire as they were throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. That's how hot it was. But then Nebuchadnezzar begins to look at the fire. And instead of seeing three guys who are dying by the fire, he sees them loose and up and walking around and there's someone like the Son of God walking with them. You getting goose pimples? <laughs> I do when I talk about this kind of thing. And so he calls them out, and he, he begins to, to praise their God. And it looks like Nebuchadnezzar is making a turn, that he's recognizing that the God of, of the Jews, the God of Israel, is the true and living God, and he's seeing the power. But then in chapter 4, about a year after that scene, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And in this dream was this huge tree that provided shade and food for the whole world. And the tree was him. And in the dream, the tree got chopped down. And he asked Daniel to interpret the dream. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, the tree is you. And in your pride, thinking that you've done all of this, you're going to be chopped down. Even after the fiery furnace, even after the dream, the interpretation of the dream, if you look at chapter 4, verse 28, I'm going to lead up to this closing passage that I threw out there at the beginning. Daniel 4, 28 says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, the things that were in the dream that Daniel told him ahead of time, this is going to happen. They happened. And at the end of 12 months, in other words, a year later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. If you're a king, don't walk on the roof. There's bad things that happen when you're a king and you walk on the roof. I mean, you can see things you don't need to see. You can, might fall off. I mean, just don't be walking. Uh, and, and at my age, I don't get up on my roof anymore. It's just, it's just not safe. Sharon lets me climb two steps on a ladder. That's it. So the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. I can feel the heat. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, 
and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time, in other words, seven years shall pass over you. Now, Israel, Kessa, seven years is a lot longer timeout than seven days. I'm, I'm just helping you to see the difference in these timeouts the Bible's talked about. So seven years he's going to be in timeout until you know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills or purposes. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And it says at the end of the days... In other words, after seven years, Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and says, my reason returned to me. And believe me, it was exactly seven years. God is very exacting in his promises that get fulfilled. Very exacting. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then he goes on to explain about God's kingdom being everlasting, enduring from generation. And then what we read before, he does according to his will. None can stay his hand. But let me close with this, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right. In other words, all his purposes, all his works, all his will are right. His ways are just. They're righteous. They're just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You don't want to mess with God's purposes and God's glory. The nation of Israel found that out. Nebuchadnezzar found that out. Job found that out. Jesus says, pray that God's will will be done and that you'll participate with his plans and purposes for your life. Don't mess with God's purposes. He has purposes for the world, purposes for the body of Christ, purposes for Franklin City Church, and he has a purpose and a plan for each of us that are here and those that are not. And God's word says, don't mess with that. Let him receive the full honor and glory that he deserves in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence here today. Thank you for the word of God that gives us those purposes and that will that we need. Lord, we all are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. We sometimes are defeated by the flesh and the world and by the enemy of our soul. And yet, God, you're always with us, whether it's a cloud or a pillar of fire or the presence of the Holy Spirit or the body of Christ or angels that you send to minister to us. You're real, and you're around us, and you're within us.
Lord, I pray that you'll make us men and women, boys and girls of the word. I pray that you make us men and women and boys and girls of prayer. That we will know you and walk with you and glorify you. And that you will accomplish, Lord, in and through our lives all that you want to accomplish. And I ask and pray this in Jesus' name.